We <clears throat> continue this morning in our series that we've been looking at this fall, where we've been talking about a biblical worldview. Now, that's a fancy word for learning to think and look at the world <clears throat> through the lens of Scripture. That is, learning to look at things and evaluate things in the way that God does through His Word. And so we've been talking about a number of topics as we've been forming this worldview, and we've been looking through the grid of creation, fall, and redemption. Basically, taking these different things and looking at them and seeing them in creation, that God made them good. For instance, we've looked at people. We looked at people and we saw that God made people. And He said, this is good. So there's intrinsic value to it. But also seeing that because of the fall, what God has made has been distorted. It's been broken. It's fallen in sin. And so people are not what they were made to be. But then thirdly, I'm about to trip and fall here. I like to move around a little bit. <clears throat> thirdly, in redemption, God is at work taking what is broken and making it new. That's what God is doing in the world. And so last week we looked at work. And we saw work in creation. And we said, ah, wait a minute. God made work. So that means work is good. And you know what? After he made it, he stepped back and he said, that's, that's good. I like that. I like this thing that I've made. But we also saw that because of the fall, it's been distorted. Our relationship to work has been broken by the fall. It's been affected by sin. But we also saw that God is at work redeeming it. And through us, we are called to redeem work in all the places that we're called to have vocation. Well, this week we're going to talk about, <clears throat> a little bit different, we're going to talk about rest. Now that might seem like a little odd topic to talk about. What is so spiritual about rest? Especially whenever you're talking about a culture such as ours. A culture that is the busiest, most overworked, the most hurried culture in all of the history of the world. We are in such a hurry. And in our modern context, it's worse than it's ever been before. We've got things to do, more to produce, more work to do, more opportunities to take advantage of, more activities to be a part of. We are busy. Because of our particular economic climate, Job security is at an all-time low. And so everyone is afraid of losing their job. And so what do employers, what do boards do? They drive you even harder. Produce more, produce more. And if you're unwilling to work more and produce more, there's a line of people behind you. Overwork is celebrated in our culture. Workaholism is lifted up as a virtue. We admire people that are crazy, busy workers. They look important. We feel important whenever we're busy. And the situation is exasperated by the fact of the advances of technology in our day. Because of technology, and the level is at today, we have the ability to work absolutely anywhere. 
And so we work absolutely everywhere. You can work at home. You can work at the dinner table. You know, underneath the table, you know, checking your, your email, updating your status, right? Managing your image, doing research, constantly doing research. You know how it goes. We're always busy and at work. You can work at the beach. You can work at vacation. How many of you find yourselves either working at vacation or wanting to? This is how it is for us. And even in our own community here, we're so busy. Our lives are filled <clears throat> with events, with activities, with sports, with all of these things that we've got to be at, all of these relationships we've got to get to. There's never been so much expectation and opportunity, and we think we have to take advantage of all of it. If we ask one another outside of this, maybe even this morning, if you ask someone, hey, how you been doing? What is the most common response you get? We're busy. We're busy. And that's not a confession, is it? It's a boast. We wear it as a badge. Because what does it mean if I'm busy? What does it mean if I'm working all the time? What does it mean if I got all these things, all these people that are dependent upon me? What does that mean? It means I matter. That's the heart of the issue here. Our overwork and our busyness is a way to prove ourselves. Down deep it's a way of saying I matter because look at all of this that I do, and that is dependent upon me. It's rooted in idolatry. And it comes from unbelief. Because if the whole world's spinning in my hand, whose hand is it not in? God's. But we're to be a people that say, no, there's a God in heaven, and the world is in His hands every single day. And so we're going to learn this morning through these two passages that achievement an accomplishment does not make you matter. It just can't. It can't do it. And that rest, this thing that sounds odd and strange and almost guilt-ridden for us, is a good thing. It's something that God made. In fact, it was the crowning achievement of creation. He commands it and He says, this is good. And we're also going to see that it's through our resting in God that He shapes us as His people into who He's created us to be. So let's look together. First at our Old Testament passage at Genesis, <clears throat> the end of verse 1. As you come to the creation account in Genesis, what Moses is not primarily doing is telling you how God created everything. If he would have spoken about atoms and chemical processes and all of this stuff, then the Israelites would have had no idea what he was talking about. He's not talking about how, he's talking about why. So as we look at creation, we see the purpose for everything. We see why God made people, why he made work, and why he made rest. And one of the things you notice is he moves through these six days of taking emptiness and chaotic nothingness and bringing order and beauty. One of the things you see every day 
is that he stops every day, he ceases his work, he steps back, and he says what? That is good. What's he doing? He's resting. He's delighting in what he's done. He's being satisfied by what he has created. He's stepping back and he's saying, Ah, yeah, that's just right. Look at that. That's good. And whenever he gets to people, he says, Wow, that is really good. So you see him resting even as he's creating. But then, in our passage, whenever he's completed making everything, What does God do? It says He stops. He rests. He ceases. And He looks back on all that He has made. See, that's what rest is all about. It's about enjoying. It's about celebrating. It's about taking satisfaction in what you've done. And that's what God does here. Right here, right after He's made everything. He stops. On the seventh day, He looks back and He takes pleasure in all that He has made. And God said, this day, this day is holy. You know what makes something holy? What makes something holy is whenever it's different from everything else. It's set apart. it's, It's totally different from all of the ordinary things. And that's what God says about rest here. Particularly, Sabbath rest on the seventh day. He gets back, he stops, he looks at all he's made, he enjoys it, and he said, this day is holy. This is special, this rest stuff. That's what he does here. And so, as God forms, gives this to his people, the Sabbath, this becomes the basis through which they are to observe Sabbath. And so the week of God's people was to resemble God's creating activity. The rhythms of their week was to be shaped by God making everything so that they would be reminded He is our Creator. He is the one at work. He's the one that we're trusting in. And so their weeks were to be defined by six days of work and on the seventh day they were to stop. They were to rest. They were to enjoy God to enjoy his work of creation, and as Deuteronomy 5 says, to enjoy his work of redemption. That's what it was all about. They were to be a people of rest. A people who, while the the rest of the world is busied and harried and getting ahead on the seventh day, God's people were to be a people that stopped and said, my provision doesn't come from me and from what I produce. My trust is not in me. My trust is in my God who is in heaven. And in that way, they were to be set apart from all the other nations in the world whose worlds were turning in their hand, so they thought. So this was a mark for God's people. The Sabbath was what set them apart from everyone else in the world. Of course, there were a number of other things about the life of Israel that set them apart as a people of rest. For instance, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year for Israel. And in the Sabbath year, the sabbatical year, what you were to do is you were to take a break from your harvesting of your fields. You were to let the land lie fallow. That is, not plant it, not harvest it. So rest extended all the way down even to the earth. 
you were to give the land a break. And so that was a matter of trust. It was a matter of trust that we're going to eat. If we, in obedience to Him, let this field lie fallow, just let come up whatever comes up, we've got to trust it's going to be enough. Again, it was a matter of trust. The sabbatical year was a year where all the debts would be forgiven. Everybody's debts paid. Wouldn't that be nice? You want to bring back sabbatical year, all your debts, it's done in an instant. What an amazing thing. There was also another thing called the gleaning laws. What this was, was that there was a percentage of your field that you had to leave unharvested. In other words, you couldn't harvest all the way out to the edges. You had to deliberately limit your productivity. Now imagine that in our world. Limiting productivity? No, in our day, it's got to go the other way, right? But they were to limit productivity. First and foremost, again, to teach them our trust is in our God. And to teach them that God has given this to us, this portion right here. He lets us have it. He says, enjoy it. And so it's enough for us. And then this out here, well, we need to share that with others. And that was the purpose of the gleaning laws, is that the poor could come and glean the edges of the field that had been unharvested. So this was a way of forming His people, of teaching them our trust is in God. And what He has given us is enough. And through what He's given us, we have an obligation. We have an obligation to take care of those, our brothers and sisters, that don't have as much as we do. So you see, rest was, it was built right into the core of who they were. There were constant feasts and celebrations throughout the year for the Israelites that reminded them over and over and over, we belong to our God. Remember what He has done, His works of creation, His works of redemption. Rest was to form them as a people. Now that sounds like a pretty good gig, right? You would think Israel would be like, oh, this is unbelievable. It's required time off. It's like your boss telling you, get out of here. Go. Take some rest. This is a wonderful gift. You would think the Israelites would be delighted with rest, right? They weren't. To get them to stop was unbelievably hard. In fact, there were so many regulations popping up in the law to try to prevent them from working. But they couldn't do it. They could not do it. Rest drove them crazy because they weren't getting ahead. They weren't proving anything because they had to trust. They'd rather be in control. They despised rest. They broke rest over and over and over. So they're a lot like us. They know how to work even whenever they're supposed to be resting. Their hope and their trust was in their work, what they could produce. So practically, what does it mean for us to observe rest, to observe Sabbath? I think a few different things, just practically speaking. First and foremost, you've got to stop. No way around it. You've got to stop. You've got to knock off 
You've got to not do something. That's really hard to do. It feels guilty even. But God is saying, you've got to trust. You've got to do it. So you've got to stop. There's got to be inactivity. There's got to be space in your life where you can be quiet. Where you can hear from God. Where you're not focused on what you can gain and do. Where you're just simply there before the Lord. So inactivity has got to be a part of us observing Sabbath. Here's another application. It's got to involve enjoyment. That's what rest was all, all about for God. You see what He was doing? He was delighting. He was looking at what He was made and He was like, Ah, oh, that satisfies me. That pleases me. I'm just looking at it and enjoying it of all that I have made. So for us as His people, enjoyment of God and what He has done, both in His work of creation and in His work of redeeming us in Christ, enjoying that has got to be a central part of Sabbath for us. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. Whenever we come together as God's people to be together, what do we rehearse? His works of creation and His works of redemption. Most specifically through Christ. The purpose for which we gather here is to come and to enjoy Jesus Christ and all that God has done through that and to rest in Him. So observing Sabbath has got to include being together on the seventh, seventh day and enjoying Him together. So if whenever you come to church, if you're not enjoying God, if you're not enjoying Christ, you're not doing it right. Something's not going right. Because this is all about enjoyment of Him. Here's another application. <clears throat> Limiting productivity. Being a people of rest and Sabbath means that we have got to limit the productivity that we can have. So that means... That means you limit what you commit yourselves to. That means you don't go all the way out to the edges in your life with your time and your money because there's always more that you can make. There's always more that you can have. There's always more that you can do, or so it would seem. But practicing rest is saying, no, I'm going to limit it. This is enough. No, I don't have to have more. And you know what? I can live on this so that I've got something to give away to others. And my time? Well, I just don't have to say yes to everything. In fact, because if I'm saying yes to everything, I'm pleasing people and not God. Because He's told me to rest. And so you've got to limit yourself. You've got to have margin. You've got to do less on purpose. It's very scary to do. And finally, it's got to involve refreshment. That's what rest is about. It refreshes. It energizes you. And so you've got to know yourself. You've got to know you. What refreshes you? I'm kind of an introvert. And so what really refreshes me is being alone. And so sometimes whenever I go for a walk by myself, I come back really, really energized. My wife is an extrovert. She just loves people. She walks into a room. I'm overwhelmed. She is thrilled. She's filled, filled with energy. 
She comes away from being with people energized. And so you've got to know you. You've got to know what rejuvenates you. And another thing that rejuvenates and refreshes is non-vocational activity. There's actual activity that can refresh you, like exercise, like actually doing things, creating things. Non-vocational is the key there. Sometimes for me, you know, with, with my particular vocation, what I'm called to do, really at the end of the day, do I finish everything and look back and say, look there, it's done. I've finished it. It's completed. I really have that experience. <clears throat> so a lot of times what I like to do to really rejuvenate myself is I like to go home and mow my grass. I love mowing my grass. You know, you start out and it's all grown up. I go to mowing my grass and I get done and I pull out a chair and I just sit down and look at my yard. I really do this, I sure will tell you. I love it because I can look at it and say, look at that. Look at what I did. I worked. And now it looks better and it's finished. And I'm enjoying it. So I don't know what it is for you. But it's about refreshment. But you've got to be careful here. You have got to be careful because we are sneaky. Right? We will begin to justify things. We will begin to say, well, I need some refreshing activities. So I need some activity here. And, you know, it just so happens that I wasn't able to get to the yard. Or I wasn't able to do this or do that this week. So I'll just do that. You know, I'll, I'll kill two birds with one stone. What are we doing? We just traded rest for work. We're sneaky. We can slip in work just about anywhere. So the Sabbath is about rest. It's about joy. It's about enjoyment. <clears throat> but there's a rest that the Scriptures talk about that go far deeper than the Sabbath day. In fact, there's a rest that Scripture talks about, a deep soul kind of rest that the Sabbath was just a shadow of. That is, it was just pointing you ahead to something else. Jesus comes along, and he's always having these run-ins over the Sabbath. <clears throat> the Pharisees were always trying to catch him in a trap, and the Sabbath was their favorite trap. By the time that Jesus shows up, the teachers of the law had come up with such an elaborate system of things to keep you from working that it was totally out of hand. So one day, Jesus is walking with his disciples through a field and they begin to take green he uh, grain heads, break them up, and eat the grain. And the Pharisees see it and they say, Aha! I caught you! Because you see, there was a Sabbath law that you couldn't harvest grain on the Sabbath. It was a technicality. You see, what had happened is the Sabbath, which was meant to be a gift to God's people, it had become a burden through the misuse of the teachers of the law. And so they caught him on a technicality. We got you. You're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And you know what Jesus said to him? Not what I would first expect him to say. He didn't first say, Sabbath? What are you talking about? Get with it, man. I came to do away with Sabbath. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's legalistic stuff. That's moralistic stuff. Forget about that Sabbath business. That's not what he said. You know what he said? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath, the real Sabbath, is here. If anything, Jesus is saying, I'm all about rest. You kidding me? You're talking about just the Sabbath? I'm talking about something far beyond the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. The Sabbath, well, it, was just, it was good, but it was just pointing ahead to me and to what I bring. And just before Jesus says this, in Matthew chapter 11, we read it. <clears throat> we read it together. Kyle read it. Jesus says this right here. Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, worn out, overworked, and I will give you rest. Jesus right there saying, I am the source of rest. Not just physical rest. Deep, deep, soul kind of rest. That's what I came to bring. That's who I am. And then right after that, he says something really, really interesting. <clears throat> he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what is a yoke? Well, a yoke in this day was a farming instrument that would tie two animals together where they could pull a plow. So it had connotations of work. It also was symbolic of coming under the mastery of another or something. That was to, to come under something, the yoke of something, was to come under the control and mastery of something else. So Jesus here isn't offering independence. He doesn't say to them, hey, come to me, I'll make all those things go away, you can do whatever you want. It's up to you. You're free. But you see, that's not real freedom. The Bible looks at that kind of freedom, which we often think real freedom is being able to do whatever I want to do. Well, the Bible calls that slavery. That's not freedom. But Jesus is saying, come to me, take my yoke upon you, make me your master. Come and abandon your life to me. Come to me, lay everything down, lose your life to me, and you will find rest. Make me your master because I'm a different kind of master. That's what he's saying here. I'm not like all those other masters you're serving, chasing after rest through work. Those kind of masters, they take and they take and they take and they never deliver. You know how it is. But Jesus says, I'm not that kind of master. You come to me, I'm gentle. I'm gentle with you. I'm a good master. I'm a good shepherd. I know exactly what you need. And that's what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to make you into something that you were intended to be. Come to me. I'm not a harsh taskmaster. I'm not a slave driver like those other masters. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What burdens you this morning? What wearies you? What's pressing you down that you've got, you've got to do to chase after rest? Is it protecting security, <clears throat> comfort, your future, trying to manage everything in your life so that it all works out okay? I know what that's like. It's really, really heavy. 
Or is it trying to keep up with a certain standard? Trying to, to keep up with neighbors or people with whom you acquaint? Is it trying to, to have the, the next best thing, the, the right house, the next job? Is it trying to, to climb the corporate ladder? Trying to get success in your work? What is it for you? Is it trying to please somebody that's unpleasable? Have I named your burden? Because there's these burdens in our life that we chase after and run after and they take and take and take and they're not good masters at all. What wearies you? What Jesus says to you, come to me. I am not a master that's like those things. You can trust me. You know how you can trust me? I shed my blood for you. With me, you don't have to prove anything. It's done. I've proved you to the Father. I've taken all your sins away. I've said it's finished. I've made you one with the Father. You've got nothing to prove. Come and give yourself over to me. I'll take care of you. I'll give you rest. This is not a one-time kind of come. This isn't an evangelistic sermon. This is for us, followers of Christ, that says to us over and over and over, come and keep coming and get my rest. Because I find i got to go back every single day. One of my favorite <clears throat> commercials out there is the Corona commercials. You've seen these commercials where they're on the beach. You know, they got the beach chairs on the beach. You know, it's a couple sitting in the chairs, and it's a very calming commercial, okay? All you can hear is the breeze, the seagulls, the crashing of the waves. You've seen this commercial, and they're sitting there, and it feels so restful. You know, it makes you want to be there, and they've got this, this slogan that they keep perpetrating. It says, where's your beach? Find your beach, you know. So, in other words, your beach is Corona. But, find your beach. But my favorite one is they're sitting there in their, in their, their beach chairs. And the woman's sitting here and she's not moving. She's just soaking in the moment. But the man's standing next to her and he's got a pile of these stones. And he's just skipping rocks. You know, just so restful. Just skipping those rocks, enjoying life. He's got a cell phone sitting on the little side table. And it starts vibrating and ringing. So the serenity of this moment has been penetrated by the horror of a ringing of the cell phone. And he picks up the cell phone and you think he's about to answer it. He's about to go to work at the beach. You know what he does? He throws it out there. He skips it across the water. And it makes you want to say, Yes! Where's my cell phone? I want to skip it. I want to throw it away. I want that kind of rest. <clears throat> so marketers and advertisers, they understand a whole lot more about us than we often do. They know. They know that we're all longing for rest. And we're searching for it so hard. We're working hard to try to find some rest. And they know that. They know we're made for rest. But you see, their message is bankrupt because a beach doesn't give you rest. 
I've been there before. You know, if there's not rest in my soul, I'm not at rest there. Corona won't give you rest, unfortunately. These things won't give you rest. They can't do it. Seeking pleasure can never give you rest in and of itself. Pleasure's good, but it can't deliver rest. So in a world that's filled with busyness, that's filled with hurrying here and there and ceaseless striving, we are called to be a people of rest. A people who bear witness to a coming rest. Right? A, A people who know how to stop. Who know how to say, my hope is not in what I can produce. And you know what? If I stop and walk away, it's going to be there tomorrow. And God's going to take care of me. And a people who know how to limit productivity so that we got something to share with other people. That's being a people of rest. And it's also being a people who are resting so deeply in Christ that we're not defined by situations. But we can walk into any situation resting in Christ, offering hope. And to be a people who bear witness to a future coming rest. The Scriptures talk about this a lot. Is that the Sabbath... And Jesus, they're pointing us ahead to a day whenever He will come back to bring a Sabbath rest that will be everlasting and full and complete whenever He makes all things new and whenever He brings the new heavens and the new earth. That will be rest everlasting. And we are a people who are called to live for that right here in the middle of this busy world. Would it be that we would be a people of rest. Let's pray together.